You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. At first, there's just darkness and silence. Are my eyes open? Hello? I can't tell if I'm moving my mouth or if there's even anyone there to ask. It's too dark to see. I blink once, twice, three times. There is a dull foreboding in the pit of my stomach. That I recognize. My thoughts translate slowly into language as if emerging from a pot of molasses. Word by word, the questions come. Where am I? Why does my scalp itch? Where is everyone? Then the world around me comes gradually into view, beginning as a pinhole, its diameter steadily expanding. Objects emerge from the murk and sharpen into focus. After a moment, I recognize them. TV, curtain, bed. I know immediately that I need to get out of here. I lurch forward, but something snaps against me. My fingers find a thick mesh vest at my waist, holding me to the bed like, what's the word? Straightjacket. The vest connects to two cold metal side rails. I wrap my hands around the rails and pull up, but again the straps dig into my chest, yielding only a few inches. There's an unopened window to my right that looks onto a street. Cars. Yellow cars. Taxis. I'm in New York. I'm home. Before the relief finishes washing over me, though, I see her. The purple lady. She is staring at me. Help! I shout. Her expression never changes, as if I hadn't said a thing. I shove myself against the straps again. Don't you go doing that, she croons in a familiar Jamaican accent. Sybil? But it couldn't be. Sybil was my childhood babysitter. I haven't seen her since I was a child. Why would she choose today to re-enter my life? Sybil, where am I? In the hospital. You better calm down. It's not Sybil. It hurts. The purple lady moves closer her breasts brushing against my face as she bends across me to unhook the restraints, starting on the right and moving to the left. With my arms free, I instinctually raise my right hand to scratch my head, but instead of hair and scalp, I find a cotton hat. I rip it off, suddenly angry, and raise both hands to inspect my head further. I feel rows and rows of plastic wires. I pluck one out, which makes my scalp sting, and lower it to eye level. It's pink. On my wrist is an orange plastic band. I squint, unable to focus on the words, but after a few seconds, the block letters sharpen. Flight risk. Susanna Cahalan is a reporter for the New York Post. She's also written for the New York Times. She won the Silurian Award for Journalistic Excellence for feature writing for the article My Mysterious Lost Month of Madness. It was the basis for her new book, Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. Thank you for joining me, Susanna. Thank you so much for having me. This is such an interesting book, and what I really liked about it as a book is the way your sense of story and your sense of self are so intertwined because when we think of the way a book is written in general, say a work of fiction, the author approaches the subject from a distance and says, okay, now I'm going to write about that subject. In a memoir, the author is the subject. There's no need to approach that. But yet you had to take a fictional approach as a writer to write about your own life. Yeah, I mean, there was, there was a distance there because, you know, because of the nature of what happened to me, 
I don't remember a lot of what happened. So I had to recreate it. So, you know, in typical memoir, as you said, you're writing the I. This is my story. But for this story, it's almost like I'm writing about the her, the she. You know, this is a someone else. This is someone kind of divorced from who I am now. So I had to look back at this kind of stranger and write about them, even though, you know, she is myself. So it's a very kind of strange situation to be in, but kind of a, a fruitful writing one, I think. That's what I think makes the book so powerful. Well, for one thing, and I don't know if you experienced this as you were writing, I found this book extremely terrorizing. It was the, it was more frightening to me than any horror novel, anything I've read this year and in a long time. I There were portions of the part where it just was like practically trembling from the fear it induced. Wow. wow. I mean, it's kind of – it's bizarre to, to feel um, – I, I feel almost – thankful or I feel, you know, I feel like that's a compliment in a way. But, um, but I mean, it, it, it's kind of bizarre that this happened to me, you know, that you're talking about something that scared you that happened to me. I mean, it's so hard to kind of reconcile that in my mind. But I, I have to say, I'm th- thank you for saying that, I guess. Well, I think what, what interests me is the, the terror that we experience um, when we're no longer in control of our mind. Right. That That's what is so terrifying about I think any real disease, you know, it's this kind of this knowledge that we are so a victim to our bodies and that, you know, at any given point, something could go wrong. Something small could go wrong in our body and just upend our whole world. And that's exactly what happened to me at 24 years old. Now, one of the things that's interesting about this book and the way that it's written is you are your own unreliable narrator. Yes, yes, very much. <laughs> and, and when it starts, we meet you and things look normal, but they are, are, are a series of clues that unfold. So I'd like you to talk about uh, experiencing those clues in the first person mm-hmm. as you remember it happening and then going back and reconstructing that and writing as a story because – to my mind, in a sense, by writing this book is a way of you creating your own self again. Definitely. And I think that just precisely what you just said, I wasn't aware of the clues as they were happening. These things were happening to me. You know, for example, I thought I had bed bugs. And that's something that only when writing the book, when looking back, did that become something kind of prescient. You know, that was a, the, kind of the first thing that happened. But I didn't know that at the time. I just thought I had bed bugs. But when I look back, it changes the whole tenor of it. So when I wrote this book, I wanted to maintain that, that kind of the idea of clues coming in. But I'm not c- completely aware of it because that's exactly what I was experiencing at that time. And I think, too, uh, this gets to this interesting uh, notion of who's narrating this book because there are two or three or four Susannas in this book. There's the one I'm talking to now who has completed the book. There's the one who lived through the events. There's the one who wrote about the events. And there's the one who kind of had to recover those memories. And you had to be a, a detective for your own life. You know, it's, I'm so glad that you're saying these things because I originally wrote the second part of the book, which is the part of when I was in the, ho- I was in the hospital for a month. So that was that chunk of that time was the second part of the book. I wrote that in third person initially. So I wrote it as Susanna the patient because I didn't want to write anything that I didn't remember in first person. It was something, I guess I just needed that distance. I needed to feel that journalistic distance on the page and the level of, you know, first person versus third person. So when I wrote that, it was important to me, but I I, I later changed it because it 
didn't have the emotional kind of wallop that a first-person narrative does. So I'm glad I changed it back. But I'm glad that you're saying that you felt these different Susannas because that was important to me to have that. There, There is not one Susanna in this, and there's really not one Susanna in my life. I mean, like, there, there is this girl who was prior to this illness. There's pre-illness Susanna. There's the middle of the illness Susanna, who I don't recognize, who is a complete stranger to me, who I can't even really access her memories. And then there's me now. And it kind of putting those three people together in this book was kind of, it was a challenge. And I, But I'm glad that you, you're aware of that kind of push and pull there. Uh, one of the things that it struck me as I read this book is how lucky you were in terms of the timing for this. I mean, had this happened six years ago, uh, we wouldn't be having this conversation. No. And the disease itself, which is called anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis, it's a mouthful, but it's an autoimmune disease that attacks the brain, was discovered in 2007. Now, I was treated in, in 2009 and I was the 217th person to have it. So if you think about, if you do the kind of math there, just, just two years prior to my diagnosis, I know that I wouldn't be here sitting, sitting here right now talking to you because I, I just, I wouldn't have had that diagnosis. I wouldn't have had the, you know, the treatment. Now, uh, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the onset uh, of this disease and also about the experience of writing about it mm-hmm. because there's a there is a definite well there is a definite breakpoint. There's also a very slow onset, and I really like the the as readers we can pick out every single symptom that's important, and we and yet you realize um, we realize that the you who is perceiving those events does not really able to put them together yet, and I think that's an interesting effect to achieve as a writer to write about yourself in that manner. Yeah, you know, I actually I wanted it to be like a mystery book, and that clues were kind of sprinkled in, and I wanted to make it clear this is what you should be paying attention attention to. This one maybe not, you know, they, maybe this is more important than this. But during the time, I separated physical symptoms from um, emotional and mental. You know, they, they didn't come together for me, so I thought, oh. I have the flu. That's why I have a headache. That's why I have I had a very, I had numbness in my left side of my hands, which my doctors thought was mono. So that was one thing. And then I was starting to act moody, and I would cry and laugh inappropriately. So that was another thing. They weren't one thing. You know, they they were two separate issues, and I wasn't able to see them together. So all these kind of clues were, you know, they they don't they weren't something I could actually capture and, and bring together at all at that time. Well, what interests me too is the the way that. Each single symptom that we see, some of these, you know, the mood disorders mm-hmm. and swings and stuff that you experienced, in and of themselves, they seem, well, that's just, maybe she's just moody. And, and mm-hmm. you and we can understand from your perception why it doesn't seem to be a problem. Yes. I mean, I at some point, you know, I really thought that I had bipolar disorder. And mm-hmm. I thought that that was the answer. And, and if you kind of made a checklist... You know, prior to kind of when the disease really progressed, this is when it was mostly emotional and, uh, you know, behavioral symptoms. It really did look like bipolar disorder. You know, I had kind of, you know, mixed episodes. You know, I would at one point be the happiest I've ever felt, so ecstatic, so thrilled with life and filled with energy. And then the next moment I'd just be despondent and I couldn't, I couldn't move out of bed. And that would be in a day that I'd, had, that I'd swing back and forth between those two. And if you kind of look at the DSM, it kind of fits that. You know, it fits the definition of of bipolar disorder to the point where I actually went to a psychiatrist who said, yes, I think you do have bipolar disorder. So at that point, I mean, I was just trying to make sense of it all. And that was the nearest I came to making sense of it all. 
Well, interestingly, the the some of the drugs that are prescribed for bipolar disorder are anti-seizure medicines. Yes, exactly. So I was actually on those medications, which is it's like Lamictal. I, I was on that. That is an anti-seizure and a, a bipolar medication that I was on, and I was on it after I was actually diagnosed with an with an autoimmune disease as well, because I was still acting psychotic at that time. Now, uh, I'd like you to just talk about. One of the things you do very well in this book is create a, a wide gallery of very memorable characters in a very a short space. And I think that's an interesting, you know, that's a challenge for you because the person who was getting to know these people really no longer exists. She was a transitory personality that came into our world for, what, a month, a month and a half. You know, I think that, I'm, I hope that it comes across that I think the most compelling characters in the book is that they're actually not me mm-hmm. they're the people around me and to actually fill those people you know my parents for example are in you know, a big part of my book my boyfriend's a big part of the book it's ho- so hard writing about people that are so close to you in your life so to, to kind of fill them out in ways because you know you almost it's almost like it's almost like blindness when you're around someone so long you don't even notice their characteristics anymore so I would actually interview everyone else about so I, I you know with my father I'd ask my mother his wife, my boyfriend, my brother, you know, his friends, I'd ask them to describe him for me so I can get kind of a fuller, rounder, more objective picture of these these kind of characters. Because in a way, I wanted to write, especially the parts I don't remember, as almost like an objective piece of time, you know. So, so I wanted that objective kind of view of them as well. Well, that's really interesting. So you went out and interviewed all the people in your life about one another? Yes, I did, which was <laughs> fascinating. And and you see how, I mean, that whole process was, was bizarre because you're asking, you know, my mom and my dad are divorced and estranged. And, uh, you know, asking my mom, what did you, you know, I got to ask her questions like, what did you see in my father when, when you guys first, you know, married? And I got to get a, a pretty honest answer. And it, and it And I think it, it didn't help to bring them together or make them better friends, but I think it was interesting for them to actually have to answer these questions that no one in typical day-to-day life, you're, not, you're just not asked those questions. So I got to ask these kind of strange life questions from the people around me. Well, you know, that's what I think uh, one of the things in retrospect, I didn't uh, know about it until you just said Now, that's one of the things that make this book so compelling because we get to go know uh, a gallery of fairly ordinary people, your mother, your father, you know, this kind of divorce situation, their, their spouses, your brother, your boyfriend, and some of your friends, your people at work in this kind of, uh, they seem very three-dimensional. Now I understand why, because you went back and kind of researched your own personal life. And that must have been <laughs> really, did, did they did they balk at any of this? Well, you know, it's so bizarre. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. To, it, it's strange that I got the opportunity to do it. And it was almost like an opportunity, really, because how many times in your life do you get to ask people? You know, the, the most bizarre part of it and the strangest part was actually asking these people about, my, about me because I had to do that so, so often. And I, I keep saying that it's kind of like Tom Sawyer at his funeral, you know, attending his own funeral. So you, you kind of have this stilted and lopsided view of who you are. So you get this very positive view, you know, the, you know, in, in, in a way, super negative and very and super positive at the same time. So they were they, they would say how much they would miss me and all these, you know, this is who you were before the illness. And then they would talk about who you were during the illness, which was with someone who was violent and would kick and punch nurses. So you kind of had this you get this strange very lopsided view of who you are when you actually interview people about yourself. 
I don't think it's I don't think it's necessary necessarily the the uh, objective truth because I don't think people are going to look you in the eye and say actually I don't really like you that much so you know now uh, as this was happening to you first you have this bed bug bites and you talk about um, parasitosis and this mm-hmm. is a, a well known problem and and some of the, and being diagnosed as bipolar. Mm-hmm. Slowly but surely, you are entering the world um, kind of like in a – usually people who enter the world of mental illness often enter it pretty suddenly. It's like a dive in, and you're kind of like wading in very slowly. And I'd like you to talk about your own – what you remembered from then and how you feel now about the stigma of mental illness, Uh, you know, the embarrassment and the shame that, you know – because when you mentioned when you first were diagnosed as bipolar, you kind of kind of well, it's the it's the disease of artists. Yes, I was thrilled to be a part of this kind of club of creatives, you know. But I remember when I was in the hospital, and I was told this many times by my mother. I insisted on keeping my stay at the hospital a secret from all of my friends and coworkers, because at that point especially during the early part of the, the hospital, it was unclear if I was suffering from a psychiatric disorder or if it was a neurological disorder. They didn't have the answer yet. So, in fact, I was given a, a, a diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder, which is a, basically a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar. So I thought that I was mentally ill, and I was I was very ashamed of that. I was, I was embarrassed, and I didn't want anyone to tell any of my friends or anyone, anything about it. So I can understand that shame that people feel. But at the end of the day, on paper, there is nothing that's different from me now talking about what I went through and someone with schizophrenia or another type of psychiatric illness. The only difference is that I was cured. On paper, we are we were the same at the height of the illness, and and I, and, I, and again, I understand why someone would feel kind of shame and not want to talk about it. But now, looking back, I realize that 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 shouldn't be. People should not feel shame about this. People people should share it, and it's 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 a hard thing to say now, looking back, because you know, like you said, I was wading in, but when I was over my head in it, you know, you can't you're not thinking straight. But I think the people around you have to realize that this is not something that we can that we should stigmatize or it's not something that we should make someone feel ashamed of. Now, once you kind of got through all this and came back to the paper, they wanted you to write about it. And I'd like you to talk about um, investigating and what you found had happened to you because it's it, it's truly upsetting. And this kind of... Um, this immersion in hallucination, in these kind of violent outbursts, and the kind of the paranoia. I, I think that investigating that and looking at some of these stuff that you looked at, you know, your own notes, the you know, the self-incriminating word documents. Yeah. Those those word documents were are some of the hardest things to read, and I didn't even include all of them in the book because talk about shame. I mean, I guess I still have some kind of shame from that time, but they were almost too. At one point, too insane and uncomfortable, and at another point, almost kind of getting at some kind of deeper truth or I don't know, or at least something that was at that point that I was concerned about. And it's hard to even really explain, but it's something I didn't – I I struggle with including – those word documents in the book because they it's almost like you your your inner your it's almost like your id is just stripped bare and just there on a paper for people to read so that was a hard thing for me 
for, to, for me to include in the book. Um, and, and then writing about it the first time when I wrote about for, for the Post that, um, you know, I, I basically had a, had four days <laughs> to write about this, about what happened to me. And I, I really had no basic understanding. So I, I remember asking my mother, what disease do I have? And she said, you know, anti-NMDA receptor autoimmune encephalitis. And I said, and I look, I remember Googling NDMA, which is an industrial waste product. And I'm like, I have an industrial waste. That's, that's like the limited understanding I had. So I went from that to kind of having a basic understanding of what had happened to me enough to write a newspaper article about it in about four days. And that kind of quenched my thirst to want to know more. But it was also very frightening because I found out how little I really understood about that time. One of the things that strikes us when we read this is how raw it is. And, and, and you know, the things that you reveal about yourself, there are things that I wouldn't want to necessarily reveal about myself. And I think it's, you know, there's a lot of bravery in this writing, in bringing this forth. And I'm wondering how much of that happened as a result of the writing itself and how much of it happened just as a result of becoming healed of this disease. That's such a great question. I, I think I, as I started writing, I opened up more and more. So I, I, I gave myself permission to kind of go down those dark alleys and really explore these like, you know, for example, one of the scenes in the book is when I'm rifling through my boyfriend's private emails and his love letters from high school. You know, I'm sitting there, you know, ripping through his stuff. I mean, it's that's not even the worst of it. That's just the beginning of it, really. But, you know, those those scenes were I remember, I, at that point, I remember telling myself while I was writing it, don't think about the people reading it. That was so important to me. It's just, I, I wasn't thinking about because I had not told my boyfriend when I first wrote it. I had not told my boyfriend about doing that. So I had to I actually read it to him when I finally was ready to tell him about it. And so I remember thinking writing it at the time. And again, he didn't know. So I'm, I, I just remember thinking, don't think about him when you're writing this because you want it to be authentic. You want it to be how you really feel. And so I really tried to push the reader out of my mind as much as possible. And I and I think I was able to do it because I don't think I could have written this book if I had the if the, the reader was in the back of my head, you know. Well, I, that's, I think, one of the things. This book, its existence I, gets to, I think, something that's very important about humans is that we are the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves. And you are a person who had to go back and find out her own story. And I think that's a really interesting uh, and powerful uh, aspect of as we read this book. We kind of start – it makes you think about your own story and the way you edit your own story. That's great. I mean I, I think memory is such a problematic thing. And no matter, I mean, again, I'm an extreme example of it because this disease robbed me of long-term, being able to create long-term memory. So I'm, you know, I'm the extreme, I'm the outlier. But I think if you speak to anyone, everyone has, you know, the idea of the objective truth just doesn't exist. And I experienced that, you know, forget me, my parents, you know, interviewing them, they didn't have a brain disease, you know, they had no excuse, but their memories were... They were problematic during that time. I mean, I remember my father and mother had vastly different takes on what had happened. And I remember my, you know, my father kept a journal, which was very helpful. And my mom, when I was interviewing her, and, and, and I basically, with my father, I used that journal. That was, that was kind of my, I felt that that was, it was of the time, it was immediate. So it, it, it carried more weight f- for me than 
talking about it after the fact. But with my mom, she didn't keep a journal, so I interviewed her more often. And she had a problem of rewriting her memories, you know. So in her mind, I was never that bad. She always knew I was going to be fine, and she still stands by that to the point where I had to dig out my medical records and show her this is what was really happening. Do you remember this? And kind of, you know, I could I could see her face kind of start to fall, and I could see kind of recognition coming back into it. And she, and she finally said, "Okay, yes, that was a very dark time." But she, for her, for her own sanity, she had to rewrite the past, and her memory and her memories were were obscured because of that. So even beyond just brain diseases, everyone in general and everyone in the world, I mean, memory is so fallible, and that's why that was something that I really discovered while writing this book. In this book, you take us in that as you head towards that month, you're on this kind of like carousel of doctors and diagnoses and going through all this part till your doctor team keeps just like ticking upward to have seven, eight, nine, and then there's so many that the earliest ones are dropping off. I'd like you to talk about some of the stuff that happened to you during that time and how you ended up in the particular ward where you ended up, which is what proved to be really fort critical. I got very lucky with that. Um, so basically, I had a seizure, and that seizure landed me at New York uh, New York University Medical Center at on the epilepsy floor. So because I was in the epilepsy floor, I was, I, as you said, I saw six, seven, eight, nine doctors kind of were on the case, all kinds of doctors, you know, and it took. You know, one doctor who is an epileptologist and neurologist, he's also a researcher. I mean, he's, he wears many hats. His name is Dr. Najjar. My mom nicknamed him Dr. House. And, you know, he is brilliant. And I think that, you know, as a doctor, as that kind of doctor, you have to be, you know. But it wasn't even the brilliance that really was the important part. It was the care that he took and the manner in which he, he treated me and my my family and he he sat down and he spent a long time and took a extensive health in, you know health history in a way that no doctors had done before you know these are simple things this is not you know uh, you know a million dollar test or something this is a simple kind of way of treating a patient that he exhibited during that time which was which was key to my key to my uh, diagnosis he asked about your – what he did essentially was what you would end up doing was to get your story. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's a function. He has such a fascinating story. He's from Syria and he is I think the youngest of five boys in a family and he was at a, in a Catholic school, in an elementary school, in a Catholic school and he was kicked out for, for being too slow. Uh, a teacher, The teacher basically said he should learn a trade. School is not for everyone. His father actually sent him to a, a public school where he thrived, and you know, obviously, the, and, and he ended up in the United States, and you know, one of the best neurologists in the country. But I think because his own history was so, you know, he needed someone to believe in him, and someone really obviously did not take into account his his own story, you know, and, and when he was a boy. I think it's so important for him to that he gets that health history from each patient. I think that's what makes him a brilliant doctor. Among the the things that you experienced are are hallucinations, and you have some memories of this, and I think you write about them interestingly. We kind of will get kind of the reportage of what you know happened, and then some of your these dreamlike memories that you can uh, dredge up. Right. I'd like you to talk about um, dredging those up and putting them into language, and how much 
what happened to you when you took like the images of your own madness and wrote them down in the language of your own journalism. It was very hard because in a way they almost exist like auras. And, you know, I, I remember them like dreamlike states. And but I remember them vividly and they're my own. They're self-generated. I didn't I didn't have the presence of mind to be able to communicate my hallucinations logically to anyone else. So the fact that I have a logical explanation for them makes me believe that these are my memories. Because remember, memories can be changed and added and adapted. But, you know, I have I remember so clearly being at my father's house and believing that he was kidnapping me and a you know they had a buddha statue and it and it smiled at me and i remember that i remember that you know very clearly that that's my my memory and i i remember staring at a um a doctor and being able to age her with my mind so these are things that are mine and, and I'm able to remember. But it was hard. It was hard. I, I tried to access more of that time and to access it deeper and try to kind of be in the body and remember it. And I, and to do that, I, I tried to meditation. I tried kind of yoga to try to access it. I think it didn't get me closer to being in that body again. But I, you know, I still have the memory. I think I was able, you know, the parts in the book that are about my hallucinations are are clear in that way that a dream is clear you know you can remember certain images and certain feelings but taken in a larger context it doesn't quite make sense do you know what I mean you know one of the things that struck me as I read this book is how uh, much modern technology plays into our hallucinations I mean we can have hallucinations that you just couldn't have had you know in the in the 19th century the, really the, the TV can talk to us the radio can talk mm -hmm. to us uh, talk about how technology played into your disease and even your research on your disease too that's really interesting I mean I think the hallucinations that themselves were all about I had very kind of media centric hallucinations and that's I think it's a function of my experience right so my experiences as a reporter, so my hallucinations had to do with my life life experience and that, you know, so I saw myself on the TV, you know, I, I, I saw myself on TV. I believe news trucks were outside my, my hospital room. You know, other people I've talked to don't have the same experience and they have hallucinations about, you know, hyper-religiosity. And, you know, one, one woman I spoke to called out for a priest to get an exorcism because she believed the devil was inside her. I mean, you know, so everyone's experience is different. But in terms of the technology in this, I actually think that technology actually played more of a minor role than you think because I was diagnosed via a lumbar puncture, spinal tap. That's been around for a long time. That's not necessarily – I mean, of course, technology, the discovery of a new disease is huge technology. You know, that idea, the ideas of technology, that's important. But the actual proof that what I was going through was not psychiatric – just it just required pen and paper. My doctor asked me to draw a clock, and I drew in all the numbers on the right hand side and completely left the left hand side blank. Which shows you that you know, of course, we you know, I'm I am here because of technology. I'm here because of science and cutting edge neuroscience. But it just took a pen and paper to kind of prove what you know million dollar million dollars worth of tests couldn't. So it's kind of a strange in in between, you know. One of the things too you talk about is. The internet as a font of misdiagnosis, yes. <laughs> not a bad thing to. to... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
<laughs> that's a rabbit hole you don't want to get down. I mean, that's basically the worst thing you can possibly do when you're experiencing any symptoms outside of, you know, if you're feeling uncomfortable about a symptom or you're worried is to go to PubMed and start researching because it's it's a rabbit hole. I mean, but, you know, that being said, I think with people there have been people who I've been in contact with who were able to be diagnosed because of, because of research that they did on the internet. So at one point, I want to warn people: don't go on PubMed and don't. But another another kind of I, I do want us to you know it is important to be your own advocate and to do research and you know to be smart about these things as well. One of the the really powerful parts of this uh, book are the transcriptions of the video, and that must have just just been really terrorizing for you to watch. How was? That was probably that's something I put off. I mean, I actually it was thrust in my face at first because I when I wrote that piece for the post, they wanted images of me in the hospital and the only images that existed were um from from these hospital videos that the, that the hospital took. So, I actually had to watch it in my newsroom, which I only could watch a minute and and I just had to just look away, but Consequently, after that, I knew I had to watch them, and I knew that they had to be part of the book. And uh, eventually, I remember I was I kind of I went away, I, I went away. I went to a writer's retreat, and I watched them. And I remember just being filled. I, I watched them in this. It was grotesque, and it was I couldn't. Turn, it was almost like a train wreck. I couldn't turn away. It was it's it's such a strange thing watching yourself go crazy. Really, that's like the only way to describe it, especially in one particular video. I'm actively hallucinating in the video and to have that physical evidence of that time. I know it's one thing to remember these hallucinations. It's another thing to see yourself going through them. It's a totally different experience. And then other videos are of me during a, a later stages of the illness when I'm catatonic and I'm rigid and, you know, I'm my, my movements are halting and slow and, you know, I'm drooling and staring off in space. I and mean, that's really hard to watch. But I think the hallucinations were even harder because this is an, a very active, you know, in, and all-consuming um, experience that I'm watching myself go through. I mean, it's, it's very hard, <laughs> to say the least, yes. You know, uh, once this was diagnosed, it was, it was not that difficult, as you explained, to be cured. But one of the things throughout this, uh, from the second you walked into that first appointment, you you got more and more drugs and chemicals in your brain. So yes. at the end, you have like a shoebox full of yeah. chemicals that you're taking on a practically a daily basis. Oh, yeah. And I'm wondering, uh, how many of those are you still taking? And just out of talk about the experience of having all those chemicals moving through your body when your body's pretty busy making its own stew. Oh, gosh. Well, I'm not on anything now, so I'm on nothing, which is amazing. Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Wow. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, I was on, you know, I was on antipsychotics, antidepressants, anti-anxiety. I was also on prednisone, you know, steroids. I was on, you know, I was on, oh, I can't even remember off the top of my head, but, you know, anti-seizure medication. So I was on, the list goes on. I was, I was on a lot. Of, and, and I felt... First of all, I gained a lot of weight, which makes you feel your body is not your own anymore. And it clouds you. I mean, it, it's hard to separate what's cognitive cognitive fatigue. You know, is your brain healing and that's why you're so foggy? And then how much of it is it, are these chemicals racing around your body and your brain? You know, I, I, it's hard to kind of find out where, where, where the, that line is. But I, I, I mean, those, those drugs, though, 
did wonders for me. I mean, really, they were, it was, I just was, I was a zombie, really, after taking, I would just, you know, kind of stare off, and it just kind of robbed you of any personality. And again, is it part of the disease? I mean, when you're healing, it's hard to say, but I know that it it wasn't, I, it felt, when I took those drugs, I felt like my body wasn't my own anymore. And I felt like, I felt also that my mind was kind of trapped in this body that wouldn't react. So I felt I was still there somewhere. It was almost like this little part of myself that was still present. But she was so, she was so confined by not only my brain healing, but these drugs that added another layer that I, I, it was so hard for me to get just simple words out and simple, you know, piece of conversation out. You know, finding that right right word would take me so much longer than normal. I mean, it just everything was excruciating. So that was that was really hard. Talk about the uh, experience of ha- after having been gone through this. You know, been in the hospital and been essentially in a period of your life that you still don't really have any memories of. Once you came out, it wasn't like you were instantly cured. It's not a miracle cure. It it's it's slow, mm-hmm. and this and in the same way, it's it's uh, like uh, sliding out of the water in much the same way you slid into it. Very much so. And in fact, it's it's really interesting that you said that too, because the the progression of the illness. So the progression of the illness goes kind of psychosis, so mild psychosis to kind of more extreme psychosis, then to catatonia, and I was stopped there. If I were, if they hadn't caught it, it might have slid into coma, even death, right? But then as you start to recover, it goes back, you know, le- levels of catatonia, then psychosis again, and then kind of like you're, then you're kind of walk, your slow march back. And I said like kind of a one step forward, one step, it's, you know, two steps back because, you know, you know, every day you're, you're improving, but it's, it's just so slow. And, and it's very frustrating because everything you took for granted before, you know, just being able to make small talk at a wedding, you know, or, you know, Going back to work and being able to work productively or, you know, just going out to a party and, and, and hanging out with friends. Those things were so painful and it was such a mountain to climb to do those basic things. So th- that for me, the, the whole book in terms of the experience of living through it and then writing about it, the third part was the hardest both, both to live through and to write about. You know, <clears throat> one of the things that I thought – must have been really frightening for you in a, in a sense was when they tell you well we'll be able to get you 90% back and i'm and i'm thinking i wouldn't that 90% doesn't sense better than nothing but 10% is who you i mean who what is 10% i mean i think 1% is important yeah. you know take away 1% of you, of you that's everything you are you know 10% that's what i mean that's what makes us different from one another you know that's 10% what... is a, it's a pretty big chunk of who you are I don't remember feeling anything about that. Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. That didn't. That wasn't a ninety percent number. I remember every single time I would go back to my psychiatrist or my psychopharmacologist, he would ask me, "What percentage are you now?" And I would always say, "95 percent, 90 percent." You know, when I was so far away from myself, I'd always insist that I was ninety percent or you know, hundred percent. But I never let that – for some reason, that number never really stuck with me. And I don't know if it stuck with my parents. I think you, I think it did. I think they were thrilled to hear that number, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, I, I – and it sounds maybe cheesy to say, but I always felt I would be back. I don't think – I mean, maybe that was a lie I was telling myself to make myself feel better. But that was – I never let myself dwell on the fact 
that I would not return. Instead, I focused on my weight. So I was obsessed with the numbers on the scale because you know, when you take steroids and antipsychotics, you, you, know, you just naturally gain weight. And I gained about 50 pounds. And I think I focused on those numbers that are those tangible numbers, those increases, right? You, know, you, can, you can see that's five pounds that I, instead of saying my cognitive abilities aren't there or being able to think abstractly about, will I return as, who, as I once was before that, those are abstract, scary thoughts. And instead, I just focus on my body. So I think that was a kind of a way of worrying about my brain was kind of worrying about my body. Well, a- as you point out, the two were inextricably linked. The, yes. the <clears throat> mental symptoms you were experiencing were directly the result of, of physical problems. Yes, definitely. And, and I, as you were kind of going into this, there are parts uh, of this and I think this is a really interesting perception uh, that were early on where you were seeing the world as invested with all sorts of meaning and kind of omens. And I, I really like that kind of perception. I think that it's important that we have that. Mm-hmm. And did you – was there anything that in terms of the hallucinations and some of the madness that you wanted to bring back with you or that you are are these filters that you think that once in a while you flip in front of your your eyes and say I want to see the world this way just to see so interesting you know I think I naturally have that kind of seeing the world through omens and super superstitiousness I I had that you know I write about my ring you know I, I lost my ring right around the time I got sick and then got it back during my recovery this this kind of important ring that that I have it's and so I always kind of have viewed the world that way and I think it was just it was made extreme. You know, I think maybe an extreme, when you're doing that in extreme ways, it's not, it's probably not good. But I've always had that. But, you know, it's interesting that you say that because during my manic, my manic kind of, you know, feelings of um, excitement and I, I was filled with creativity. I felt that I was very creative. And, I, and I've, you know, heard this from other people who have gone through uh, bipolar disorder when they go through kind of manic episodes. They feel very creative and happy and filled with, like, verve and, you know, lust for life, right? And I had that those feelings. I mean, obviously, the, the downside happened very quickly after that as well. But that those kind of – that excitement, even though, again, it's extreme and you don't want anything in extremes. But I think – I hope that – and I think I've had that consequently not, you know, not being sick and, and being able to experience those very highs as well. Well, I think there's uh, – to a degree, there's a, a, a manic clarity to, to the writing. Not, not And by that, I don't mean um, that it, it – well, by my, I'm saying it, clarity. There's a fierceness to the writing of this book. Now, as did you – you started this with an article and then kind of rewrote it. Talk about um, just some of the your process of, you know – Getting to this final manuscript. Yeah, I mean, it was a far cry from. So I, I, I originally wrote that article and realized how little I knew and how much I had to learn. So, and I knew there was a larger story here. And I thought, you know, I really have to spend a lot of time with this. So the first thing I did, and I was very aware of memory and my my own my own problems with memory. And again, I, I didn't really, I didn't really understand how problematic memory is on a large scale yet. But I had the presence of mind, and I'm very happy I did this to get the objective fact down first. So the first thing I did was I, I ordered up my medical records, which are about thousands of pages of medical records. And I got a dry erase board, a dry erase board calendar. And I filled in those kind of the month before my hospital stay, the month of my hospital stay, and the month after my hospital stay. 
with as much objective fact as I could. So through my medical records, I could say this day I had this spinal tap. This day I tried to escape, you know, and then I could use emails and kind of place myself in time before and after. And then and then from there, I started doing my interviews. So I, I needed to kind of get that basic level of this is what happened that day. And, and so that was really helpful for me to kind of get the chronology down. And that's something I actually tried to do early on in my recovery. I was really obsessed with kind of getting the chronology right. So I, the minute I got the chronology right, I was able to kind of move forward and do these kind of interviews with family and friends and kind of fill in the blanks from there. And uh, to a degree, this book itself, of course, is is part of your healing process. Yes, definitely. I mean, it's... I think that's one of the reasons why I wrote this book. I wanted the opportunity to take hold of something that had happened to me, something that was out of my control, right? I was victim to this and kind of make it my own narrative, right? And and in a way exert my will on something that ha- that I had no control over. And this book gave me that, you know, I was, as we discussed earlier, kind of writing yourself and writing your experience. It's almost... You know, of course, it's my version of what happened. It's, I'm trying to get as close to the truth, but of course I got things wrong. But by going back over it and trying to understand it, not only understanding what had happened to me, but understanding what had happened with the disease, you know, what had happened actually in my body, that makes me feel like I have ownership over it, e- even though I don't, but it just makes me feel like I do. I've been speaking with Susanna Kahalen. Her new book is Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. Thank you for joining me, Susanna. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.